Welcome to the No Normal. The No Normal is a special presentation coming to you from New Music Edmonton. Thank you for joining us for this month's array of conversations, music, and special features. This series is presented in partnership between New Music Edmonton and CJSR Radio. Watch for additional special projects between NME and CJSR in the future, and enjoy the No Normal on their airwaves. You can find the station on Edmonton Radio Dials at 88.5 FM and online at CJSR.com. New Music Edmonton respectfully acknowledges that this celebration of creativity was produced on Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwachewaskaigan is the traditional gathering place of the many indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our community. We further acknowledge that it was the indigenous peoples of Treaty 6 who established the principles for and have remained exemplars of the respectful and caring use of this land for the purposes of art, livelihood, and spirituality. It is from these principles that New Music Edmonton has sought and will continue to seek partnerships, inspiration, and learning. For more information about NME's programming and events, look us up on social media or visit our website, newmusicedmonton.ca. Welcome to Episode 8 of NME's The No Normal. I'm your host, Oscar Tsebarth. On this occasion, we find each other on the threshold of the June solstice, 2021, surrounded by myriad celebrations. These are the times of maximum sunlight here in Alberta, and whether you choose to celebrate the solstice, midsummer, or just long, beautiful days in the north, we're glad to celebrate the daylight along with you and to help make these shortest nights even more special in the process. New Music Edmonton has teamed up with the Good Women Dance Collective for a series of live-streamed new works appearing nightly from June 20th through June 28th, the series is part of a project between the two organizations supported by the Canada Council for the Arts Digital Strategy Fund. There are nine shows being streamed, five of which include dance and sound collaborations between members of Good Woman Dance and local musicians and sound artists. NME's artistic director Ian Crutchley met recently with Kate Stashko of Good Woman Dance, and they spoke about the origins and philosophies of the collective, along with some of their projects and plans for the future. Could you tell me a little bit about how and when... Good Women Dance Collective got started. Ainsley and Allison were students together at in the McEwen University Dance Program, and then they both went off and finished their degrees elsewhere. And then when they came back to Edmonton, they wanted a vehicle for being able to create work and continue their training. And that was kind of how Good Women Dance Collective came into being uh, in 2007. Lita then joined about a year later. This will be, I guess, coming close to 12 years this year. I joined in 2012, so three years later. I was living in Toronto at the time, and I was looking to find out what was going on in Edmonton. And I had interviewed Ainsley for a magazine, The Dance Current, that I wrote for in Toronto. I called her and said, what's happening in Edmonton? And, and that's how I found out about Good Women. And the rest is kind of history. And then Becky joined us in just this last year. So that's, right. that's oh, kind yeah. of the history. Uh, could you maybe talk then a little bit about the name? Um, not so much the good women part of it, but the idea of it being a collective. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think about it often. I think that we're constantly questioning that and defining the idea of a collective because it's a complex 
sort of beast. What it means right now is that the artistic work is shared amongst all five of us. And so people are involved in as many of the projects as they would like to be. People, we're, we're working on also developing a way of creating that's collective. In the past, actually, some of our creative processes have been in a way where one person is sort of the project lead and the others are, you know, dancers in the process who contribute and we have discussions and uh, it's still very collaborative. We're exploring with ways of actually creating in, in collective ways where there isn't one choreographer, there are five choreographers. And I guess the other way that it's a collective is that all of the programming decisions are made collectively. There's not an artistic director, there are five co-artistic directors, I guess, and there are five administrators and there are five season planners. And, you know, so the decisions about programming and the work to implement that programming are, are shared amongst the, the five of us. How would five people choreographing, is it choreographing or choreographing <laughs> in the same piece? How would that work? I mean, it could be fantastically fun and chaotic, or maybe it's, or maybe you're just trying to find out what that means. It is, to, it is definitely a work in progress. It's something we, it's an initiative we've just started this last season. We call it Move Tank. And it's a chance for us to get into the studio together, just the five of us, without any expectation of producing something. So most of the time when we get in the studio, it's like, okay, we have this show coming up. We have this many weeks. We're going to make something for this end goal. But Move Tank is meant to just be like a research time and a play time, experimentation, risk taking, and trying to uncover what the sort of ways of working or what the tasks are or how we, uh, yeah, how we tease something out that is actually coming from all five people in the room. Does the group have something in common amongst the five of you that is maybe not quite a language of movement, but an intention or um, ambition, something that you know, could perhaps inform a philosophy of the Good Women Dance Collective? The best way I could probably define that is that the collective is the five individuals. Like that's a conversation that we've had before. Oh, do we have a style? Do we have a, you know, because you'll see certain dance companies and, and, and I'm sure other groups out there who you can say, okay, this is a certain aesthetic and this is a certain like type of work that they make. We've talked about that a lot. And there was at one point sort of a desire for of a shared vocabulary or a shared aesthetic. And we've kind of let go of that and embraced the fact that what the defining thing is that we're five individuals who are coming in with different ideas. Those people's ideas change, like something that one person was interested in last year might not even apply two years later. And mm -hmm. that the thing that makes the processes and the projects work and be interesting is, is the five different perspectives of good women. Also, the idea of community and how good women is part of a larger community, how there's work to do in, in who is on stage and whose voices we're hearing, whose bodies we're seeing and whose work we're experiencing. So I think good women is spending a lot of time thinking about that and what, what our role is in the community. Maybe gets us towards talking a little bit about your relationship with musicians and sound artists, because for those of us who are working in sort of more progressive areas of music and sound, one of the most notable things about Edmonton is the degree to which so many of you 
give priority to original music or original sound as part of your work. The dancers are so willing to share the space, not just the creative space, but also the physical space. So all that is about sort of getting to the question of, of what it means to you individually, but maybe also to the collective to work directly with musicians and sound artists. That's, that's great. And actually, I'm really glad you said that about the Edmonton dan- like dance community. Everyone in Good Women really likes the process of collaboration, the learning that happens, and the way that it obligates us to also question our own field <laughs> that we're so-called experts in. There's no collaboration, if obviously, if you're just bringing in a pre-recorded thing. There's no risk-taking, really, or challenging that happens, or knowledge sharing. And I think right. those are things that Good Women is really interested in. And... For me personally, I guess I can say that I came through a lot of training where there was live music in the studio in my classes and in my training and what a blessing that is. So there's just something vastly different about the music being and the sound being created A, in real time and B, in the room with you. Mm -hmm. It's just, I I don't really have the words for that. It's an intangible thing. The energy is different and the feeling and the sound and the conversation between the two artists is just really alive and and different. The other thing is that Good Women really values creating work for artists. And so the idea of using a piece of music and not compensating the artist properly for that, it, it doesn't really sit well with a lot of the values that the collective has about fair pay for artists. And I think the idea of commissioning someone or collaborating with someone, paying them for the time that it takes to create that work and, and to perform that work is, is really is important too, in addition to the artistic aspects that are interesting to good women about collaborating. Let's talk a little bit about the Solstice shows. This is a little bit unusual for good women as well in the fact that none of you are actually performing together, even as duos. It's uh, all five of you have chosen to work with separate musical partners. And so I wouldn't assume that this means anything in terms of there's been a collective discussion about what you're going to do. I doubt that. But I wonder um, what it means to you to work sort of within the Good Women Collective, but also on your own at the same time. Right. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't really thought about it because it's mostly being done out of necessity and the mm-hmm. fact that until today, we couldn't be in a room together. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, it's funny because when a decision kind of gets made for you, you don't always like think about why it's happening. You're just like, well, this is how it is and mm-hmm. this is the way we can do it. So we're going to do it this way. But um I think that uh, we were speaking earlier about like the idea of collaboration and the idea of um, working with original music and working with musicians. Like those are both things that Good Women has been doing, you know, as a group for a little while now. And so those elements are still there. The choreographic output, for lack of a better word, I guess will be uh, much more individual. But it also kind of ties back to this idea we were talking about um, creating collectively and like the fact that it's Mm -hmm. five individuals bringing their ideas to the room in that way it's the same it's five individuals they're just not coming into a room together but each of those five individuals is is bringing whatever they're interested in right now maybe there'll be something interesting that comes out of this project where we go okay what are those five things that we made and like what if they were all a piece together i don't know like maybe something interesting can uh, 
be born out of that. And the other thing I would say about this project is that it feels like it is, it's a lot about um, sort of adapting, which everything is these days. I, I would like to think that that's something that Good Women is open to or interested in. So the idea of like making work in the with what you have and with who, with who you're with and in the space that's available, in the form that is possible, <laughs> imposing sort of limitations in order to paradox, like that paradox of imposing limitations to generate creativity. Just the idea that you create work within the limitations of what's available yeah. and the paradox of, you know, creating, finding creativity via limitation. I think that's very present in this project and mm -hmm. is something that Good Women has done and hopefully will continue to do. Right. Yeah. yeah. In this particular project, you're going to be working with saxophonist Ben Whittier. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that collaboration specifically. But uh, yeah, we just had our first meeting, which we were hoping to do outside, but it rained. So we were on oh. Zoom. I am really looking forward to this collaboration because it seems like something that both Ben and I are really interested in is the idea of like how interwoven of a duet it can be. Of course, it's a duet no matter what. Two people are doing something together and one, you know, there's a musician and a dancer making something. So it's a duet already. But the idea that we're playing with is uh, that Ben has developed this software, which tracks where I am moving in the room and right, yeah. plays different sounds based on where I am in the space. And there are sounds that he's pre-recorded of him playing sounds on his saxophone, but then he gets to duet with those sounds. So it's almost like a trio in a way, because there's me moving and there's Ben and his saxophone live. And then there's these sounds that are going to be triggered by what I'm doing in the room or where I am in the room. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it just, I'm always really curious about like how we can make something even more, yeah, sort of interwoven and interactive and rich between the, the performers. And like, I have to admit, I don't know if Ben will agree with me on this because <laughs> this is just my dancer, like dancer, dancer opinion, but you were talking about collaborating between musicians and dancers and having live music and, and musicians having autonomy over their work and as opposed to it being pre-recorded. Mm -hmm. And there's something about being able to control some of the sound with how I'm moving that creates a sense of autonomy in the dancer that I really, really like. Mm -hmm. And the dancer hasn't always had that kind of autonomy in some historical context. So there's mm -hmm. just a part of me that finds that really, uh, I just find it empowering. Almost every interview I do now with this, at some point the pandemic comes up. And I don't ask about it gratuitously because I, I think it has impacted everybody, literally. So I don't think artists are special in being impacted by it, but I do think artists have had to find their own way of responding to it. And so one of the questions about a collective like Good Women, where uh, you are so used to being in the same room together. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about how you've existed as a collective outside of that normal interaction where you can't even meet in a coffee shop to, to talk things over. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I appreciate you bringing it to the wider context of like everyone has been impacted by the pandemic and mm -hmm. artists aren't 
special. <laughs> oh, they are special, but they're they're not they're not the only ones. <laughs> yeah, they're special, but they're not special in the pandemic necessarily. Yeah. They're they're special for other reasons. But um, obviously, it's been a challenge. The silver lining of it is that it's obligated us to question what is important and what is valuable and what is necessary, and to develop maybe even a greater sense of gratitude for the the fact that eventually someday we are going to be able to be in a room together making mm-hmm. art and like what a privilege and what a what a beautiful thing that is yeah it's, it's i think given us a chance to really define like what is important to us about dance and we've realized that there are some things that are more movable than others like and i think they're different from for each of us but questions about performance in a room together or online and you were talking about accessibility well like anyone anywhere in the world who has internet which is another question about accessibility that is for Mm -hmm. another day but no it's um, it's important (laughs) yeah but it definitely widens the the pool even though it's not a hundred percent but it definitely widens the accessibility of that that work for it to be available online or maybe it's a hybrid where it's online and it's in person and then mm-hmm. people have different ways of accessing it so that's some that's like a something that has been discovered i guess for good women in the past year is that that, that there's a there's a benefit to that even though there's the the drawback of feeling the desire to be in the room with the the audience and the energy exchange and the dialogue that happens like even if it's unspoken but also yeah things like um like training um, and not being able to be in a room together to train and um, training online. And there's all, that's a whole can of worms. I think mm-hmm. some like dancers have all kinds of different thoughts and feelings about that. And we are, have been made to realize like how valuable it is to be in a room together and how much we're going to enjoy that and how grateful we are mm-hmm. for it. Yeah. But also I think the idea of streaming or somehow making a show available in other ways beyond being in a room together will will stick with us in some way maybe uh the th- those things that we were so used to maybe about being in person and in front of an audience are things that maybe they can be more special than they were so that maybe they're not the default anymore they're something we can curate into or um curate maybe that's not the word but care for a lot more Related to this, I believe in a meeting we had a couple of months ago, there was a discussion about the fact that Good Women is looking into the idea of dance on film as being a, an important part of their future. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about the beginning of Happiness, which is a project you're doing with the vocal quartet Femme and composer Jane Berry, and how this relates to what your next steps might be as an organization. Basically, what happened with that project is that it was meant to be performed live in a room with people in March of 2020. Right, yeah. (laughs) And, uh, oh, I remember that that Friday, like, very clearly. It was about a week before we were supposed to open that Mm -hmm. Friday, March 13th, when things kind of went sideways. And uh, so we postponed. We realized that we didn't know how long it was going to be. And if we if we wanted to try to share it, we were going to have to look at different ways of doing that. And so we um, we talked with Jane, uh, the composer, Jane Berry, about 
what she thought about sharing it online somehow. And anyways, the long story short is that we are in the throes of finalizing the details and we're going into rehearsals this month, actually. Great for a film shoot that will happen in early August for mm-hmm. with the hope that the film will be available late August, early September, I think is, is the timeline we're looking at. It's involved uh, quite a massive amount of uh, reimagining of the project and hiring of, of course, a whole bunch of extra folks who are uh, bringing their expertise in film, mm-hmm. which is an area that Good Women doesn't have a lot of experience. The score itself has been adapted by Jane oh, okay. in a really significant way uh, to sort of collaborate with this, the medium of being on film. And um, we're very excited about it, but we're on a very steep learning curve. Yeah. <laughs> the learning that will happen from this project is, is huge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's lots of room for learning yeah. for Good Women on this project and, and for, I'm sure, for the singers as well. Is Good Women a little bit more concrete right now about where they're going to go next season or are you still in the kind of wait and see stage we've been kind of this is just the way we've approached it all along it's just sort of like make a plan and then change it right (laughs) (laughs) you have to just go with what we know at the moment and so yeah the plan the plan is for a couple of performances one in november and one in april that will be in person but for the november show we are absolutely planning to have uh, an online component. Now, I'm not sure whether it's going to be like a live stream or whether it's going to be something that is recorded ahead of time. Um, I think think live stream is what we're thinking, just to have that option available. And November, is that uh, Convergence? Yeah. So it's back, it's it's in its original, it's always in November. I always remember that. Mm -hmm. And um, this would be the Convergence that would have been in 2020. Is that correct or is it just an entirely new show yes and no it is basically (laughs) the show that was going to happen in 2020 except we added it's now basically going to be a a triple bill it was going to be a work by Sasha Kleinplatz who's from Montreal along with a performance by Dustin Stamp who's a Mm -hmm. fancy dancer here in Edmonton and now we've also added a solo performance by Karen Fennell who's based in Montreal so it's going to be uh even maybe a bigger and more exciting performance. NME's Ian Crutchley speaking with Kate Stashko of Good Women Dance Collective.
That was an excerpt of Monograph of Bird's Eye Views by composer Emily LaBelle. The piece was written in 2015 for the National Youth Orchestra who performed the work in this recording. Born in Toronto, now residing in Edmonton, Emily LaBelle has developed a catalogue ranging from community-based multimedia pieces and electronics to works for large orchestra. She currently holds a position of Professor of Composition at Grand McEwen University and affiliate composer with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. We're very pleased to present a feature interview with her conducted by Ian Crutchley, including special guest Fargo, the composer's loyal dog, softly snoring in the background. How long have you been a composer? I guess about 15 years now, maybe mm-hmm. a little longer. So what does the word composer mean to you? Someone who works with sound, someone who tells musical stories, someone who's an artist. Could you give me a little bit of a, an idea how you became a composer and maybe talk a little bit about, for example, was there a moment where you realized that was the thing you really wanted to do as a musician? I was really involved in music as a teenager and actually thought at that time that my sort of life and career would be in performance as a trumpet player. I went and studied trumpet performance for a year after high school. During that year, was in an accident and shattered my jaw. I didn't really know what I would do, for lack of a better way of describing that, but when you sort of had your your sight's very focused on on something, and then you can't do that anymore. It does take some time to sort of figure that out. You know, when you're 22, you're still, you're just a baby. You don't really know yourself. I think in a way, that moment <laughs> changed everything for me. So left music school, moved back home to Toronto, worked some really shitty jobs. <laughs> uh, and I think that was probably more something that shaped me more than than anything sort of so these were shitty jobs that were more than just summer fill-ins after, yeah after yeah semester of school. it was like okay I yeah. could do this for the rest of my life and I don't want to do this for the rest of my life mm-hmm. went and studied audio engineering at college which college uh Harris Institute for the Arts in Toronto mm-hmm. and so it's it's a year-long intensive program and then did some interning in some studios and work part-time at the Royal Conservatory in Toronto, handing out practice keys. <laughs> so sort of immersed in music in different ways, mm-hmm. but also feeling quite removed from performance and playing and classical music and jazz and pop and all the stuff that I grew grew up playing and had mm. been very involved in that had made me fall in love with doing that. So there was you know some pretty good software where you could write music and kind of play around with sounds and started doing more of that mm-hmm. as I was interning and in school learning learning about audio engineering and found I actually really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the sort of creative creative aspect of fiddling around with different sounds. So eventually mm-hmm. went back to university when I was... 25, 26, mm-hmm. went to York University where you can take a general music program, relearned how to play trumpet with a different embouchure so, oh, I, could, you did. Oh. so I could get into the program because you have to audition on right. an instrument, um, and spent three years at York University, took a really lovely undergrad composition class, and then was sort of like, oh, I really like this. Mm-hmm. I think I think this is what I want to do. 
you know, I yeah. think at 19 <laughs> or 20, when you're figuring out what you, what you want to do, you're sort of thinking, oh, well, I really like music, and this is how I've done music so far, so this is what I'm going to continue to do. And then finding, finding composition, which I think allowed me all the things that I loved about music, but in a way that suited my temperament better, my curiosity better. This is The No Normal, a New Music Edmonton production. NME is a not-for-profit arts organization and is dependent on a vast array of sponsors, members, and volunteers. Funding and support for this season's presentations, including this podcast, has been provided by the Canada Council for the Arts, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, SOCAN Foundation, Alberta Gaming and Liquor, the City of Edmonton, and CJSR Radio. We thank all of them for their generosity and continued commitment to recognizing the vital role that the arts play in our lives. Thanks also to the members, volunteers, and NME staff and board members who keep it all together and happening for New Music Edmonton, to the artists whose work is the reason we come together, and of course, thank you for joining us. We now return to the discussion between Emily LaBelle and Ian Crutchley. I don't know if I really felt like a composer until probably a few years ago. Like it's taken mm-hmm. a long time to, to own that as, oh, this is it's, what I do. Sorry, you like point at you accusingly and say you're a composer. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I am a composer. Oh, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of composers are like that though. It takes them a long time. Yeah. Because then there's all the questions that come after. Like if someone asks you what you do, you're like, oh, I'm a composer. And then they want to know how you make a living doing that and what kind of music you write (laughs) and all these questions that are kind of hard to answer. I find dentists like to ask me those questions a lot. And since I go to the dentist a lot, I've come up with all sorts of strategies. But it's it's hard (laughs) to answer that question. Uh, And... It's sort of a mix between embarrassment and um, discomfort and privacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but can you see anything before that? I think I was saying this to someone the other day. Like, as a kid, I always made stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, mm-hmm. I was a maker. Yeah. Regardless of medium. I was an introvert as a kid. Read a lot of books and, and was quite happy being in sort of my inner world and my mm-hmm. imagination. Mm-hmm. And how can those things not kind of inform where you end up yeah i think you kind of need a rich interior world (laughs) to do something like art Um, and to be (laughs) comfortable spending long stretches of time by yourself in your in your thoughts in your studio space that's very much part of of that work life maybe i could have just very well end up being a photographer or something Mm -hmm. as well but i think it was kind of inevitable i ended up in something that was quiet in a way, self-directed in a way, continual learning as part of as part of what you're doing. Did you ever, when you were a kid, did you ever pick up on anything from your friends making you realize that, like, these folks aren't quite living the same inner life that I am, or uh, <laughs> they don't think about music the way that I do? Like, in, in hindsight... I think you can only see it... Yeah. In retrospect and go, oh, it was inevitable. I mean, I was pretty into trumpet. <laughs> yeah. You right. know, most people did like the one band class or whatever after school. And I was in orchestra and band and stage yeah. band and yeah. took private lessons. And I didn't have like my own records, but I remember being really attached to a few records that I think were either my dad's or my sister's. Mm. And some of them 
Like I think back now and I was like, wow, those are incredibly uncool albums to have listened to yeah, over and over. But then I had, there were some really cool ones. My sister had, um, I'll tell you the uncool, uncool ones. So this LP called Hooked on Classics, which oh, yeah. is basically yeah. <laughs> a Beethoven symphony with it's a disco, disco beat beats, in it? the yeah. background. And I love those. Like I would listen to those over and over and over again. And my dad had some Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass <laughs> nice, yes. albums. And then Nonstop Dancing Hits. There was a whole series of those. Um, those are great. And then there was three volumes of Trumpet A Go-Go, <laughs> which I, like you can just go look it up because I don't think I can do it justice by that, describing it. But is that James Last? Was yeah. James Last? Yeah. Yes. That's right. We have yeah. James Last records in our house too. But then I also <laughs> had like... A Laurie Anderson record. Oh, right. So there's something there, right? And and you know, no idea of the significance of Laurie's music or mm. what a trailblazer she was, being ten years old listening to Oh Superman. But I think back now, it's like, oh, yeah, there's something yeah. there because she's sort of like our our great grandmother of women composers. That's like an album I play for my students now. It's still great. So there's definitely some records I I don't think I had friends that obsessively listened to nonstop mm. dancing hits. <laughs> <laughs> if you're if you're thinking about a hypothetical composition that isn't a commission, it's anything. Yeah. What are kind of the favorite things you would collect up? Favorite in, things. in order to get going. Collect favorite things being anything that has to do with composing. Well, I would say the first thing is is just almost all of the chamber music I write now is for very certain specific people. So you so collect the humans first. I collect the humans yeah, first right. and humans humans that I enjoy working with, humans mm-hmm. that I find interesting as humans and as musicians. So just sort of collecting up that. <laughs> Metaphorically, I guess. Yes, they're not, um, they're not possessions. But you know, they're... they don't come sit in the studio with me <laughs> while I work. I think about a lot of my music that I've written. There's a very, very strong connection to the natural world. Mm-hmm. So there's specific locales or a sound of wind in the trees or, or something that sort of sparks or starts the piece. Mm-hmm. But often that comes from a book I'm reading. I just need sort of the, the mental emotional space Mm -hmm. that is often hard to find at certain points in the year Uh, you know those those weeks or months where you have an hour here and there that's not a time to start a piece for me I really have to sort of plan my year and when I want to start projects and I find once they're have sort of got enough trajectory or momentum then I can work with them you know an hour or two here and there where Mm -hmm. I have time but that sort of time to just shuffle around in my slippers and drink tea and go out <laughs> to the garden and yeah. walk the dog and choose to not be around people, which has actually been pretty easy this year to not be around people. <laughs> do you actually write in pencil now still? Or does it ever occur to you to not? Do you need it? Do you mm. like pencils of a particular kind? Can you see how many pencils are littered here on uh, my the staple, coffee? The blue yeah, ones, these yes. these are the pencil of choice. Those are kind of nice. I like those. They're quite nice. Yeah. Um, I still work with 
pencil and paper, mm-hmm. manuscript paper. I do quite detailed sort of plans of a piece usually before I start on pencil. And I, when I say detailed plans, I don't really mean, oh, this note at this moment, but sort of texture, color, shape, weight, depth, and often figure out pitch pitch material. <laughs> Those sorts of things I figure out, but I rarely write out specific rhythms in pencil so they'll sort of be like basic pacing and shapes and stuff so I do a lot by hand because I actually feel like when I try to do stuff with the computer there's a bit of a weird block or disconnect that happens when I try and put stuff directly into the computer because I do use a computer something Mm -hmm. about how like the the notation software sort of enforces this way of thinking and grid on you and, and the MIDI sounds are awful and none of that really works very well. So I tend to work for as long as possible on, on, on paper. And then there's kind of a moment, not that things should be easy, but it's easier to move to the computer and do the rest on the computer.
From 2011, that was Tincture by composer Emily LaBelle in a performance by Quatuor Bozzini from their album Chacun Sa Miniature. And now, the final part of our feature interview with Emily LaBelle. When I look through the catalog of your pieces, there's all kinds of things in them, ranging from kazoos to full orchestras. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how all this stuff works together for you in some way. Like... Are they different things you, you have? Like, how do you compartmentalize yourself? Or do you, if you're writing for kazoos, do you find it's kind of the same way of thinking? Yeah. As for full orchestra? I sort of separate orchestra as a very different beast than from, writing. From all the other things. Yeah. So there's everything else and then there's orchestra. Yeah. yeah. There's just some very sort of pragmatic things you have to think about when you're You've got 100, 120 musicians on stage. Um, Looking at you. <laughs> yeah. When you know how little rehearsal there's going to be, when you may or may not know who's conducting your piece, that your timing has to be exact. There's just different levels of consideration and also bureaucracy that comes with writing for orchestra. Whereas... When, you know, Continuum Music commissions you to do a celebratory piece and they sort of say, do what you do, then then I'm like, okay, well, how can I make this playful and interesting, but still kind of represent the things that interest me? Things that are not possible when there's 80 musicians on stage. You know, I know the musicians in that chamber group are going to be much more game to at least try something. And they probably know you fairly well. And they know me, yeah. and they kind of know what I'm about. And I also know the artistic director, Ryan Scott, there is going to be cool. Okay, you want to do this? Great, we'll make it happen. Mm-hmm. So calling them up and saying, hey, I just ordered 50 kazoos. They're going to be shipped to your house <laughs> this week. Great, cool. Yeah. Let's figure it out. So what is it about kazoos, anyway? Emily. They've only been in a few <laughs> pieces. Well, but we've talked. I have inside knowledge that you're been thinking about building giant oh yeah (laughs) i am building a giant well it's actually a harmonica oh right okay i think there's just a fascination of of things that fit in your pocket and make sound and don't require expert knowledge to play i also just like putting things in pieces that maybe are a little unexpected a different sound or a different perspective that maybe you didn't quite expect and just things that anyone can play. But yes, I am I am working on a on a giant harmonica for my backyard. How giant is it? Well <laughs> I shouldn't say too much because okay. everything so far has kind of failed. I'm I'm um this is where exciting things happen when you're a little bit in over your head. Mm-hmm. We'll say it's large and <laughs> it, like, I'm eventually hoping to have a bunch of them that'll play sort of different sounds. So depending on what the wind is doing, you might have a single note or a chord or... Nice. Um, so that's the eventual plan. 
for for sort of capturing some sounds with prairie prairie wind with the idea of you know like our, our landscape here being directly implicated in mm-hmm. how the sounds are shaped well giant harmonica sounds great because anything other than a normal small one is very expensive to buy they are and that was i was when i was starting to think about this project thinking maybe i could buy some big ones and sort of take them apart and use different parts but they're very expensive yeah 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 so i'm back to very sort of simple ones made out of popsicle sticks and plastic straws and (laughs) things like that though that sounds cool i i can't wait to see those and think it's all happening in this neighborhood. Yes. <laughs> There's, you know, this has definitely been the year to think about the local and the present. And, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about, well, I mentioned earlier, landscapes sort of informing a number of pieces over the past few years, but it's always been landscapes I've passed through. Mm-hmm. I think this past year has been the longest time I've really been in, in one place yeah. <laughs> for a very long time. So I've been thinking a lot about how I could make music that actually the landscape is generative or generating sounds. Well, there's lots of opportunities for that here, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So the sun. Um, and the, I mean, if you could have cold-activated instruments. That would be pretty neat. Can you imagine? Yeah. Like there was just a point where it reaches... A wind chill of minus 30, and these things kick in. <laughs> then there'd be excitement for that weather rather than dread. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, if you if you want to work on that project, I would certainly be happy to. We would have to find a scientist that knew mm-hmm. how to make that happen. Yeah. But that would be, that'd be cool. I was thinking of, like, of the city. what could the magpies activate, too? Because like, oh, yeah. there's so many of them doing their thing. Maybe there's a way they could be involved. Okay, now you got me thinking. <laughs> when I first encountered your name, uh, was probably in that Music Works interview, and, and it says right at the beginning, Toronto-based composer mm-hmm. Emily LaBelle. But you've actually lived in some substantially different places since you were in Toronto. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if those places have impacted you creatively in ways that you might not have expected. Since living in Toronto, I spent three years in Montana, in Missoula, Montana, United States, and then from there moved to here, Edmonton. I felt a little untethered (laughs) in some ways, which I think has impacted me in some way, just feeling a little less grounded in, in, in one place. I don't even know if this is answering your question, but... Well, it might be, because any artist's creative side, I think, can be healthily ungrounded by circumstances like that. Mm-hmm. For well, other people, it can just be paralyzing. But. Yeah, I think it also happened at a really interesting time, right? Because I, up until then, I had been in school, so I had been really in a sense, grounded by a mentor or a teacher or the school itself, my mm-hmm. studies. And then I finished I finished grad school and I guess was in Toronto for another year and a half, two years after I finished grad school. But that was a really pivotal time 
when I was learning how to be an artist without that sort of grounding of a mentor mm-hmm. and you know being in school you have a lot of time where you can devote to your artistic work and then yeah. all of a sudden you're you don't have someone to check in with and you know I had other jobs and work that I was doing so that that move away from Toronto came as I was sort of figuring out how to be untethered from from school and and all of that so it's hard to sort of separate things because I think it you know that time in Montana was where I really figured out who I was as a composer sort Mm -hmm. of a little more fully grown but I also think I figured out a lot about myself because you know I packed up my life and moved to another country where I didn't know anyone Mm -hmm. it's really healthy to just go live somewhere really different Mm -hmm. and to live in rural rural Montana and just meet different people and different different ways of thinking and and work at a music school that was very different from the music schools I went to and just I think there in particular the experience a real sort of generosity of people I the community there was really strong and looked after each other and and so it's sort of that sense of feeling um, a little unstable in some ways, but just seeing a lot of really good and people was a really, it was like quite productive creatively while I lived there. Mm-hmm. And I think for me being really, really close to hiking paths and nature and that was really healthy for my, for my work to be able, you know, on a Saturday to go out for a morning hike and then come back and spend the afternoon writing. That was really special. And then also just learning how to balance a lot of conflicting demands, making time for everything. And then I think moving to Edmonton, feeling far less successful at that. <laughs> and, and so I've learned a lot about, um, well, a friend said it really well the other week, because I, I haven't done much composing this year. It's been, well, I think it, challenging year for everyone but I've just uh with teaching and other commitments I found it really hard to find time and and focus and Mm -hmm. I finally had sat down to do some work the other week and my friend just said it's amazing how much doing the work just actually helps isn't it it's like oh yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so I think Edmonton's sort of been an exercise in in like failing failing a little bit in some respects Mm -hmm. and then learning to be gentle to yourself and finding different ways into it but also you know encountering this amazing community here and, and again feeling incredibly welcomed and and supported and that's been really really beautiful and I'm really grateful for that I think it's been helpful for art making yeah. well, to just good. be around interesting people here it's and a very odd place in that regard in my experience yeah. that, that although I've always felt welcomed when I've arrived somewhere um, this is the first place I've ever come where people I didn't know would ask me to be in things with them yeah, and just take it on faith that I would have something to offer yeah <laughs> in terms of your relationship with composition students 
what do you want to be and what do they need from you and what do you think you need from them? Well, they all need very different things and that's, mm. and that's what's challenging and exciting. Most importantly, I want to show them possibility of different sound worlds to possibility of what their lives as artists might look like. And to do that in a very open way. So I don't really have any sort of aesthetic agenda with my students. I just play them and expose them to lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Meeting them where they're at and, and supporting them in that. And then also fostering a sense of community amongst them. So I, I teach primarily undergraduates. And I don't think you're always aware of how close-knit the musical community is and to have those discussions of how a person should be in a community and what that means Mm -hmm. uh, because that does start at school yeah supporting your friends um, that's really profound because I think for some of us we had to learn that later yeah and some people don't learn it I think when I was first starting as a teacher um, I made more assumptions about my students and what they needed and wanted and more assumptions about, I'm going to put in air quotes here, the industry or what my students would go do. And and just in my interactions with students, it's really challenged some of that. My conscious and unconscious bias, um, my belief in certain things or how things have been done. And I've really had to be good about just reset or checking in on that stuff. And, and, um, yeah, just sort of continue, continually reassessing things. Is, is this the best way to be doing things? Is this serving my students well? What, what skills do they need? What do they all want to go on and do with their lives? Mm-hmm. Those, sorts of, those sorts of questions. I think I've gotten much better at questioning myself in a healthy way. Do you feel like there's some new directions coming for you that might be immediate or could be something that you just imagine doing in 20 years? Hmm. Something I'm excited about, I, I'm working with a lot more local artists here in Edmonton this coming year. and That's been really exciting for me to form some new connections and, and to really have things be local and present and mm-hmm. working in chamber music again in those sort of collaborative situations where I, I find that I thrive. And I think I could find that interesting and find new directions even within that for the rest of my life. But I've also been working on some grants and I've gotten a few grants to, to build things. So mm-hmm. some metallic objects with base shakers that'll be activated by woodwind players here in, in uh, Edmonton. So working that way. And then, mm-hmm. as we were mentioning earlier, these, these prairie wind harmonicas, harmonicas that'll play yeah. prairie wind. So that's really exciting. But also I'm on that edge of it being terrifying because I don't quite have all the skills and I'm learning how to do things and it might not work. But also that's, that's where, where things get exciting, where things fail and are yeah. kind of a mess. And, and I think whatever comes out of this, this particular project will really kind of set trajectory and, and that'll be exciting. Mm-hmm. And it might be, oh, I'm really awful at this and nothing works, so I'm going to go do something different. Or it might turn out in this way where everything works really well and that's, you know, maybe I start making more music that doesn't involve musicians or maybe Mm. musicians weave into that. I really don't know, but I kind of like being in those spaces where 
it's a little scary, but there's something, something there that could be interesting. That was an excerpt from You Moving Stars by composer Emily LaBelle, commissioned and performed in 2017 by Anne Harley Voices of the Pearl. We've come to the end of this edition of The No Normal. Thank you to Kate Stashko and Emily LaBelle for sharing their thoughts with us. A reminder that news about special programming and events can be found at newmusicedmonton.ca, along with our streaming podcast archive and other multimedia works featured in the series. And be sure to explore the eclectic programming of our partners, at CJSR Radio. The No Normal Podcast was created by Caitlin Sean Richards and Ian Crutchley for New Music Edmonton and is produced and hosted by me, Oscar Zebart. <laughs>